So again, welcome back. <clears throat> what wholesome mind states did you notice, if any? Any wholesome mind states? Yes. Um, yes, I noticed um, joy. Uh-huh. And one of the things that I wanted to ask about is what the difference between perfecting and grasping or attachment mm. to it. So it's a good question. In the, the way Analayo um, talks about in this section, we bring these qualities, we perfect them. And what's the difference between grasping and attachment? And you're right, this could easily be distorted. You know, I, I want to have more joy or more mindfulness or whatever, and if I don't get it, um, and it's, that's just cultivating more clinging or more aversion. Uh, so it's skillful means, and it's just being willing to recognize in oneself, is this um, a skillful cultivation, or am I holding on to grasping, and can I, you know, and you can feel that in the body, you can feel when there's that tightness, that wanting, that conditionality around experience, and when there's a genuine sense of, of cultivation that's wholesome. So it's an it's a exploration. Um, when we talk about developing wholesome states of mind, this is often a question that comes up because we can grasp after those as much as we can grasp after, I keep, you know, like a new iPad or whatever it is that you want. You know, you can want joy as much as that. Um, but... Uh, um, you work for Apple or something? No, I don't actually. <laughs> I think what's the common lingua fraca of desire these days? So to be Apple products. Um, a new Surface tablet. How about that? That's what I want, actually. Uh, but we need to really understand there needs to be some movement of mind orientation around these things that has an aspect of desire to it. Because unless we want mindfulness, want joy, want to deepen in these ways, we probably won't do it. You know, it only happens through motivation. The unskillful form of desire is tanha. That's the Pali word. It's usually translated as craving. It literally means thirst, and it's got this sense of unquenchable. We're always grasping, reaching, wanting, and this moment isn't good enough. There's another word for desire in Pali that's called chanda, um, and it just literally means desire, but it doesn't have a lot of um, connotation to it. It's just that movement of the mind and it, it's, it gets its valence by what it's associated with. And so you can have Dhamma Chanda, love of the Dhamma, passion for the Dhamma, and that's necessary um, for us to keep being motivated, keep moving forward. We have to have some sense that this path, and we'll get to this uh, towards the end of this day, this path has a, has a purpose and it's going somewhere. And we want to put in what it takes to get there. So it's a whole navigation to see when are we just doing that, motivated to perfect these qualities because they bring more happiness, deeper, truer happiness. And when are we craving after them because we reject our present moment experience and we're beating ourselves up, we're not good enough. And if only I had more of that, I'd be a happier person. And so we see there's a rejection of the current experience and a grasping after something else. When we're practicing skillfully, there's not that rejection and there's not the grasping, but there's still cultivation. So this is a big topic, but thank you for bringing it up. 
Yes, Barbara. So my awakening factor was investigation of the dhammas mm -hmm. and naming the clinging and attachment I felt with, with a certain subject. Oh, right. mm -hmm. um, and part of my tools, you know, to, to, to name it, you know, to find first the name mm -hmm. for it, to name it, to accept it, mm -hmm. and then to let it go. Mm -hmm. And this was the clinging part, though. Oh, no, so, uh, so, but you, you noticed investigation of the dhammas. Correct, yes. Uh-huh. And you named it and let it go? I named it clinging and attachment. Oh. Is but, that, are, those, are those naming? Yes, yes. Okay. And then I, you know, I, I tried, I try, by naming it, I sort of brought it closer and mm -hmm. accepted it. Mm -hmm. And then let it go. Mm -hmm. But when I let things go, I, I imagine this huge, spacious universe. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, and sometimes I actually, you know, I'm in, in, in my little garden and I kind of kick it out. <laughs> is that pushing things away or is that, you know, if I can just still imagine it floating way out there, um, how, how is letting go different than pushing it away? So this is the kind of the opposite of her question of how is, you know, wanting you. it, craving, and how is pushing it away not aversion. Again, it depends what gets cultivated or what the kind of aftermath is. If we're really pushing something away with aversion, what we're experiencing is aversion. If we're truly letting go, as I said to you a moment ago, there's equanimity, there's acceptance of whatever's happening. And one of the key things is we often think of letting go as this active thing that includes a lot of throwing away, you know, get this out of here. True letting go or a meditative letting go sees that things are going anyway. If I don't hold on and I see it clearly, it's a uh, way that it's enchanted be has already shifted and so it no longer has the same power. I've, I've, the letting go happens in that moment of recognition where I've disentangled a little. And so the pushing away, the kind of trying to is in some, a lot of times extra, especially if we're doing it with aversion. So this is part of the challenge of this is to really trust the mindfulness, that the first step you did of the naming and what, you know, the recognizing, you said you even brought it a little closer so you could feel it, that's already shifted it. It's, you're no longer so caught in it. And all you need to do is stay present. And you, you know, the, the wisdom is there that it's hopefully not you know, maybe it'll do it in another moment. In this moment, it's not clinging. So done is what had to be done in that moment. Uh, yeah, and you know, with the pushing away is extra, the kind of, no, you know, where, you know, is it there, you know, is it under? It's just to trust, trust the moment. Yeah. Okay, well, hopefully, it, you know, it's always hard when we talk about wholesome states of mind and, and we can kind of look around and go, I'm not, uh, uh, uh. I don't have any joy or any happiness. This is really subtle at times, but it makes a difference to notice, you know, just to step outside. The air is a perfect temperature, you know, the light is soft, it's not too hot, not too cold, little bit, just to feel that and actually appreciate that sense of openness when we do it, especially when we can do it with some mindfulness, so we're really very present. So this encouragement to notice wholesome states of mind, to develop them, again, this is a, a really important part of, of this section of the teaching. But then the sutta takes another interesting turn. 
up till now, we've, what we've been asked to notice in the other um, suttas, in the other sections of the sutta and up till now, uh, you could say almost are objects or experiences. You know, we're noticing the body and the breath and a mind state. I've talked about noticing processes and how this is the, the, the lens through which we look at these experiences in the fourth foundation is again a little more complicated. But then there's this turn where our object for practice is not an experience, it's not a mind state, it's the Four Noble Truths. This is, again, the genius of the Buddha, but here are the Four Noble Truths that maybe we've thought of, oh, if I was a, a good card-carrying Buddhist, I'd have memorized them, or I'd have them in my pocket, you know, yes, I'm a Buddhist, here are the Four Noble Truths. But they're here as a practice as a meditation practice. I keep finding myself using these superlatives like this is, but this is a real turning. When we actually go from just relating to objects of experience to seeing truth, to seeing in our experience directly, not as a belief system, but what the Buddha pointed to, what the Buddha discovered in his uh, uh, night of awakening, that there are these truths to experience. And they're meditation experiences. They're not, it's not a philosophical system or a belief that one should have if one is a Buddhist. It's the Four Noble Truths. And um, I'm sure you know basically what they are, that the first noble truth is dukkha, the truth of dukkha. This word um, is hard to translate. We often use suffering, but that doesn't convey the meaning of the word. But the truth is there is dukkha. If you have a mind and a body, there is, there has been, there will be dukkha. It's just a fact of life, not just for humans, but for all sentient beings at this, whether it, you know, the, from the extremes of, of real suffering and grief and loss and pain to the slightest sense of unsatisfactoriness, dis-ease. These are all within the range of dukkha. So recognizing that and reframing or framing your experience through that lens is what the Buddha is asking us to do. The practice is to see as it really is. So we go for, through all of these different practices that are all again and again pointing us to what's happening, how are we relating to it, where are we getting caught, <laughs> see the impermanent nature, da, da 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 But here is what we're practicing for, because the Four Noble Truths are these, is this teaching about suffering, and I've said this before, and the end of suffering. <coughs> well, here it is in these four succinct statements. There is suffering, there's a cause of suffering, which is craving, there's the end of suffering, which was the ending of craving, and there's a path to the end of suffering. It's kind of radical to actually shift from, you know, thinking I should memorize this or read a book about this or, you know, believe this, to having it be a practice. So I've talked before about the power of naming. Of, of, of really clarifying what's happening by giving it a name. So we've gone through, you know, naming, you know, this is a, a sensation or it's a painful sensation or a pleasant sensation. 
um, to see its changing nature, to see maybe I've identified with that. I'm someone who always has, you know, a sore knee, all of the selves we create about that. Here, the way to relate to experience is to see, oh, this is suffering. And what's the cause of suffering? It's craving. It's having this relationship to experience that we see, you know, and, and craving is a shorthand for what we've talked about before, greed, aversion, delusion. They can all be seen as part and parcel of craving. Craving just, we, if unless delusion was present, we wouldn't be craving. If there was wisdom, we would see clearly and we wouldn't have this belief that holding on or pushing away will bring happiness. So all three of them are implied in that. Um, so it's this recognition that the nature of human experience has suffering in it. Not to turn away from that, not to make it all there is too. You know, it's not just about suffering, it's about the end of suffering. But really starting to see the pervasive nature of suffering and how when we resist that, we create more suffering. We then have, we're in what's called the second dart or the second arrow. You know, there's the original suffering, whatever that is, <clears throat> the difficulty of mind or body, and then the mind that goes, this shouldn't be happening. I don't like this. Why me? You know, it's someone else's fault. Um, if only it wasn't this way. And we just get caught in this cycle of deepening and perpetuating our suffering. The Buddha is telling us, no, just see clearly. This is uh, the nature of experience. This is... Um, kind of rooted in the human experience. I read this recently in uh, the Buddha Dharma magazine, a, a Buddhist magazine by Norman Fisher, who's a great uh, Zen teacher from San Francisco Zen Center. He says, suffering gives us the incentive, vision, and strength to transform our lives. So it's, it's, uh, it's not just a negative thing, suffering. It's not like, you know, all we should do is practice to get rid of suffering, but we use suffering to bring understanding. He says, the gap between reality and the basic human approach to life is dukkha, an experience of basic anxiety and frustration. Seen in this way, dukkha could actually be another name for human consciousness itself. It's a little extreme, but I thought it was powerful. Dukkha is not a mistake. It is not a correctable situation. It is human consciousness. Dukkha is every moment, every experience of our lives, not just the things that obviously seem to be dukkha, like pain, suffering, and loss. Pain, suffering, and loss are built into every moment of consciousness, even if they don't appear on the surface to be pain, suffering, and loss. The great and beautiful secret of meditation practice is this. You can experience dukkha, with equanimity. If you try to eliminate dukkha, it would be trying to eliminate life. But if you can receive dukkha with equanimity, then in a way it is no longer dukkha. And that's again the Aikido move of the Buddha. As we recognize suffering, we don't object to it. We don't seek to create it, but we don't resist it in that way of saying this shouldn't be happening, life shouldn't be like this we develop this strong equanimity that says, this is the way things are right now. And through that clarity and understanding of the cause of suffering, which is craving, we start to see a way out. And it's interesting, these are called the Four Noble Truths. 
why is, it, why is suffering noble? What's noble about suffering? Why it's noble is if it leads us to find a way out. <coughs> if we actually use this to bring us closer to experience, so we're not resisting what's happening, but beginning to understand, and again, this is all about wisdom, all about understanding, why we suffer, how we actually create our suffering through the way we relate to experience. And once we start to bring wisdom in, as Norman says, we relate to experience with equanimity or acceptance, it's no longer suffering in quite the same way. doesn't mean suffering of a certain kind won't happen. Pain, loss will happen in every life. As Sylvia Borstein likes to say, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. And it's sort of distinguishing between the suffering, that anguish of mind that says, no, it shouldn't be happening. It's like, I don't like it, I don't like it, I don't like it. It's like, no, it is like this. This is the nature of having a mind and a body. And that in and of itself is the pointing to the end of suffering. That there is a way out. And the Buddha's great gift was, he said there is a way out. This is not a finite thing that, you know, we're stuck with. But through wisdom, understanding, meditation, cultivation, there can be an end of suffering. And of course, he talked about the possibility, the final end of suffering, full enlightenment. But we also have to recognize, just as we have to recognize wholesome mind states, those times when suffering ends. We talked at the beginning of the day in the homework, uh, Donald asked people who were here last time to notice when a, a particular mind state ends, especially an unpleasant one, when aversion ends or reactivity or judgment or fear. These are all constructed mind states and they end. And in that ending, if mindfulness is there, there's the possibility of a moment, even if it's a moment of freedom of clarity, of peace. This is what this points to as a practice, that we need to notice both suffering and the end of suffering. That it's not just about suffering, it's about the ending of suffering, and that we have every day multiple moments of that kind of ending. You know, even if it's leaving work and you like close that door and the mind just relaxes a little, Usually we're so much on to the next thing, where can I get my cup of coffee or, you know, go get what I need, to, you know, take care of what I need to do next. But to just be in that moment that let go a little, that breathed a sigh of relief or relaxation, to appreciate those moments of stillness, those transition points, and actually see what the quality of mind is like there. Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, that wonderful Thai meditation master, talked about temporary Nibbana, where he said if we didn't have those moments of coolness throughout the day, we'd all go crazy. The mind would just be so caught and constantly in conflict. So this pointing as a meditation practice is to see this for ourselves, to see that it is possible to have a mind even in a moment that's resting in some kind of equilibrium or some wholesome state that isn't clinging on to anything or pushing anything away. This is what the, the practice is all about. And so again, as a fourth foundation practice, we've talked about how there's all these different ways 
Tony said before, you know, if I have a pain, what are the different ways of relating to it? Well, you know, we could see it as an aggregate and are we creating self around it? Or we can see it as a sixth sense door on the body and what's the fetter that's uh, attached? Are we averse to it? We can see it as a hindrance and then the, so the hindrance is aversion and we work with that. But here, the way to relate with it as a practice, as practicing the fourth foundation, is to just say, oh, this is suffering. Again, there's a radical shift that happens when we can name to that depth what's happening. Usually we're like, oh, my knee is killing me. I don't know when I'm going to, you know, what can I do about this? Or, you know, it's pulling or it's tightening or there's aversion or, uh, you know, we're relating kind of mindfully, but just say, oh, this, this is dukkha. Or this mind state, you know, I've been caught in planning and wanting and we've kind of named it, we've been mindful of it, but just to see, oh, that's suffering. To perpetuate the obsessive mind, feel a contraction in the body. I mean, it's not extreme, we're basically okay, but to see it's suffering. Again, there's some, because the wisdom is there. When you, when you have enough wisdom to frame experience in this way, what happens when you say, this is suffering, this, and you're going like this? It's like, oh, how about letting go? You know, you don't have to say, I want to let go. You know, if the, the fire is hot and your head, you don't, I think it'd be a good idea to let go. What do you think? No, you know, let's have a discussion about this. No, you let go because you see that's suffering. So it's radical to actually use this in your meditation practice and then by extension in your life. Oh, how I'm relating to this. Someone, you know, the, the thing about Death Valley, it, you know, to see that she was creating a relationship of aversion around it, but a, a, a further subtlety would have been saying, and that's suffering. I think it happened spontaneously in that example anyway, but the four, practicing with it a fourth foundation would be say, oh, that's dukkha. And I see that as dukkha. And I see the craving was wanting it to be different. And the end of that suffering is to let go, to, to accept, to see it as it is. So we can actually use the four foundations as a mindfulness practice, not just a philosophy, but see it. And we have so many opportunities to recognize in this way. And see, when the mind... You see the natural wisdom of the mind when it really clearly sees, oh, this is suffering. You want to let go. How many people say, this is suffering? Let me hang on here. You know, I really want more suffering. That feels really good. And you might find you jump right back in, but those moments of letting go, seeing that's possible, that's what makes the difference. Seeing it's possible and recognizing that it's possible, that you can let go in a moment. And again, we're talking moment to moment here. We're not talking end of path, final letting go, but moment to moment, we have this possibility of letting go. And then the fourth noble truth is there's a path that leads to the end of letting go, leads to letting go, which is the eightfold path, sila, samadhi, panya, right? Uh, the, the ethical uh, conduct, meditation practice, and wisdom. And that our meditation is a development of all of those and, and it's, it's a path that includes all of our life, it includes how we uh, 
create our livelihood, how we relate to people through our speech and action, um, our meditation practice, and our wisdom understanding. That's what we deepen as we practice this as, a four, as the Four Noble Truths, that we can actually cultivate that. It's a path that the Buddha laid out that's walkable, and that, where the exhortation is to know as it really is. Part of this, there's, you know, again, could, Four Noble Truths includes all of the Dharma, right, in that, and could talk for days about the Four Noble Truths. But part of the teaching of the Buddha, there's three aspects to each truth. You know it as it is. You, you know, for the first noble truth, you understand it. Suffering, you understand it. Craving, you let it go. Uh, Nibbana, you realize it. The four noble truths, you actualize it. But the third func- feature always is, and you know that you're doing that. You, you see that that's happening. And that's the sort of validation that we need to have that we are doing what we need to do. We can have so much judgment and second guessing and doubt and, and wavering. You know, am I doing it right? Everyone else seems to know, but I don't know. And is this the right path? And what about the right practice? Look and see, you know, is whatever you're doing leading to more happiness and well-being? And I don't mean you're always happy and always have a sense of well-being, but just that you have a sense that that's developing. Or is it not? That's the only, you know, discerning we need to have. We can see it developing and deepening for ourselves. So it's as simple and as complex as that. But I love that the Buddha included in this great treatise on meditation practice, the Four Noble Truths, as the pinnacle. And again, in the progression, you can see all of the practices leading up to us being able to say, this is suffering. This is how I came to suffer. This is how I let go of suffering. So right here in this sutta is the path. So again, there's all these cyclical um, things, feedback loops happening. And It can seem, you know, as soon as we talk about the Four Noble Truths, again, it seems like it's all about suffering, but recognizing that right before that we were cultivating all of these wholesome states, that that's what we need to keep doing. So the mind has the stability and the pliability and the kind of faith and confidence to actually turn to suffering. No suffering, not sort of... (laughs) look at the corner of our eye at suffering or you know, deny suffering or deaden ourselves to suffering, but actually understand suffering, the nature of suffering, that we've trained the mind to this kind of extent that we can know it. We can actually use this as a practice. It's quite radical. And so this contemplation of, of suffering, it's not that we sort of dwell in suffering, that it's all about suffering, that it's a morose or a morbid kind of depressing path. But in the knowing of suffering, we find in the very knowing of it, the ending of it. And this is what's so amazing. And in so much of the Buddha's teachings, it's this sort of counterintuitive or paradoxical um, movements where we actually turn to suffering 
we accept suffering, we know suffering, we understand suffering, and in that very understanding find an end to suffering. Because, as Norman says, there's some equanimity, some stability, some uh, wisdom that's being developed through this. So we can fully be with our experience as it is without having to shy away from it, have it be different. In that, it doesn't mean we're passive, because look at how engaged these practices are and how much cultivation there is. But the culmination is this willingness to know suffering, know the cause of suffering, and let go. That this, is, this is the ending of suffering, the possibility of the ending of suffering. So I want, us a bit, uh, I want us to sit for a little and just see if we can, it's always hard to point to this in a meditation. It's like, okay, end of the path, end of suffering. But before we do that, any questions or comments, anyone practicing this way? Sean at the back. Judy has the microphone. Thank you. This is my first question or comment I've ever made here. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, I had read Norman Fisher's article in Buddha Dharma when it was published, mm. and I, I remember a reaction mm -hmm. coming up and confusion. And then when you just read it again, I noticed a reaction to it. And I notice a, sh um, a sharp disagreement with it, mm -hmm. and also in agreement with it. <laughs> part of me thinks, part of me agrees with it because um, I think what he's pointing to is um, just being in samsara, um, being um, susceptible to the vic vicissitudes. Mm -hmm. um, and when I enter deep concentrative states, I, um, I, I notice how susceptible we are in our day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. So that's the part of me that agrees with it. Part of me, though, disagrees with, um, maybe it's the languaging, mm -hmm. but what I'm hearing is that dukkha is sort of interwoven in the fabric of everyone's experience or being. I'm not sure if I um, am paraphrasing correctly or not. Um, and I, when I think of the three characteristics, I think of impermanence and no-self as being givens. But with dukkha, as Sylvia says, it's optional for, this is my understanding of it. And to be, to, to be awake is to be without dukkha. Now that's theoretical for me because I'm not fully awake. Fully awake, yeah. But that's my understanding of mm -hmm. what it is to be awake. Mm -hmm. Which to me says that dukkha is not a characteristic of that... The awakened mind. Of the awakened mind. Mm -hmm. So, 
Um, it's hard for me to reconcile that train of thought with what Norman Fisher's writing. Yeah. Um, and so that's where my reaction comes up in disagreement with yeah. what he's saying. No, I, you know, I, I agree with you. When I read it, I sort of went, whoa, that's strong. But I thought I would share it just because it is such a strong statement about Dukkha. But I think it would be clear or I think more correct if he said, every time he said another, like he says, another name for human consciousness, unenlightened human consciousness. Right. And I think that's what he's, he's assuming or implying. I don't think he would, he, I, I presume he wouldn't say that the Buddha was experiencing dukkha in the same way, that the Buddha consciousness, awakened consciousness, experiences dukkha in the same way. You're right, it's the very hallmark of awakening is greed, aversion, and delusion don't arise. So how can dukkha arise? I mean, right. there's a whole discussion to have about that because, of course, the Buddha suffered after his enlightenment. He had back aches, and his cousin tried to kill him. There are all kinds of divisions in his <coughs> family and, and the, uh, the, the various villages and, and kingdoms that he traveled through that he tried to mediate and was sometimes successful, sometimes unsuccessful. So there was a lot of stuff that happened that to a normal person would have been very challenging. But did he suffer? I don't think so. Um, so again, we could uh, you know, have a whole discussion about what's the nature of enlightened mind. But I agree with you, this is strong, and I would definitely put in there the unenlightened human consciousness. But why I, I do like this is because it points to the pervasiveness of dukkha, that we, if we think of dukkha as just, you know, when I'm really troubled by something, in or out of that's dukkha, that there's this subtle, um, experience of dukkha, of dissatisfaction, dis-ease, just this not quite rightness of the mind in its subtlest movements, even in deep states of meditation and the fact that they have to end. You know, and we're coming out, it's like, oh no, you know. Um, so that dukkha is just, that's what I see, I think he means by how it's woven in. It's just the nature of the mind to cling. I mean, the Buddha always talked about the five aggregates of clinging. That's why they're suffering, because we cling to them. And this identification with the five aggregates is so second nature to us that we don't even notice that we're doing it. Yet that's suffering. And so I, that's why I like it, because it points to that pervasive nature. But I also agree that I don't think it's, you could say, innate in human consciousness if you're including in human consciousness the enlightened mind. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad to, that we broke a new record yeah. here. Sean sits there day after day <laughs> listening to everything that gets said here and finally motivated to ask something. So let's see how, if we can uh, practice to the end of the path here in 20 minutes or so. So again, finding that comfortable posture Settling into the meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.
donate.